0: Romans chapter 4, verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, "...who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written That it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And father, I do thank you again for your word. I pray that you would help me to keep my thoughts on this text clear. And Lord, we pray that you would just bless our time of growing through studying your word, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So it's getting hard for me to believe. I'm it's, I'm coming up on like the 20-year anniversary of when I joined the Navy. I'm no longer in the Navy. But one of the things, um, as, I, as we work through Romans, I, I'm starting to have a, a memory of when I went through SEAL training. One of the things that I hated more than anything, and I don't use the word hate lightly, was running. I hated running. I'm a a water guy. Throw me in the water, hold me underwater, make me swim 10 miles. I'm okay with that. But you put me on land and you want me to start running. Like my body just wasn't designed that way. I've got short legs and a longer torso and I do much better in the water. But my other problem, not only do I hate running, is that I don't sweat. And so you go, what does that have to do with anything? There are people who can see people running and they can just get drenched in sweat. I don't understand these people. I'm not one of these people. Me, I can get my heart rate up to like 150 beats per minute. Well, I can't, I can't maintain that for as long as I used to be able to do that. But I could do exercise, and I'll look just like I look now. And when I was going through training, being a slow runner and a guy who doesn't sweat, as the line was going, I would be in the slower bunch, and they look at me, and they're like, Hanson, what are you having, a cup of coffee on this run? What's going on here? You don't even look like you're putting out. Do you want to be here? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like dying. And I could run fast enough to get right towards the line that was called the goon squad. Now, the goon squad is, as you take off on this run, the group of people could be spread out a half mile, a mile And eventually it would get so unsafe because the instructors were spread out. If there was an injury, they had to keep the the class together. And so they would sort of circle around. And when they decided to circle around, there'd be an instructor arbitrarily standing somewhere. They would decline. Boop, that's the goon squad line. Everybody in front of the goon squad, they pretty much got to walk in a circle, drink water, stay dry. Everybody else, it was... a a series of being remediated, is what they called it, which meant going to the surf zone, getting sandy, doing a bunch of push-ups, doing whatever, and then you could work your way out of the goon squad and you'd catch up with the class and then you'd take off again. So as a student, I just didn't like it. Now, as an instructor, I loved it. I was, six years later, when I came back as an instructor to run through this, they chose me. They're like, well, you don't like doing push-ups, pull-ups, and all of that other stuff. I'm like, yeah, just give, give me all of the swims and all of the runs. I'll lead all of the runs. I'll lead all of the swims. I don't care. And so when I take off on a run, the instructors, I had friends, the, the more of the bodybuilder looking guys, when we pull, they would say stuff I can't repeat here to me. They're like, Gunnar, can't believe you. You're just up there. You look like a total prima donna, just like cruising along, no sweat. You're just like coasting on the sand. I'm like, I'm dying. Are you it's just, I don't sweat. You check at my heart rate like I'm dying here. I want to go collapse behind the truck so the students don't see me. And so we would go out on these runs as a structure leading that you had to be aware of how long the, the, the group was getting. And once you felt like it was getting done safe, it was up to you to kind of circle around so the slower people could catch up. And you'd kind of I don't want to say reward those that well, in that case, it was rewarding them. They kind of could regroup and then you take off again for your run. Going through Romans has reminded me of leading these runs. Don't worry if you're having a problem keeping up in Romans. I'm not going to send you the surfstone. There'll be no push-ups. Unless we want to start incorporating that into church, it'd be really cool because I kind of missed that, and it would really set us apart, you know? <laughs> Go to church, get, grow spiritually and physically. <laughs> I've been thinking about how we could merge the two worlds, but we won't do that. And so Romans is one of these these books that as i'm studying it i'm growing in my appreciation of how god used paul this letter is from beginning to end is really so seamless in how it fits together we need to caution ourselves from being distracted by the chapters and verses those didn't exist when when paul wrote this he just wrote straight through then in the 1500s, a French guy who I'm very thankful for created chapters and verses. I'm glad that we have these numbers to help us navigate the Bible. But, but the issue is that's difficult is when I go from one verse to the next and from one week to the other, is when we look at verse 16, we kind of have to know what happened before. And so I'm finding that every week what I'm doing is I kind of have to circle around, go back to the beginning, sort of refresh our brains of what happened. How did we get here? And then when I get to the last verse, I kind of have to go ahead because what's coming next week really ties into this week. And so in doing that, to review ourselves, I'd ask you to turn back to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. I'm not going to to read every verse. I'm more going to kind of explain what happened, and you can check out out my facts. In verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1, this is essentially Paul's letter. He says that Paul, we're told that Paul the Apostle is writing this letter. We know in verse 7 that it's going to Christians, to believers who are in Rome. There's a whole bunch of other stuff in between that, sort of Paul on his tangent, explaining the gospel. Whenever he writes the gospel, he just gets so excited about what God has done through Christ in his life, and he just can't help but to share about it every time it comes up. But essentially, the first seven verses say simply, this letter is from Paul, and I'm writing it to the believers who are in Rome. Then from verse 8 through verse 15, he sort of gives them an introduction. He has never met these Christians who are in Rome. We know that Paul wrote this letter from Corinth, which is modern-day Greece. Uh, He wrote it in a town that was filled with sin and idolatry, and he had heard about these believers in Rome. Uh, Rome was a strategic city. We're told that all roads led to Rome during that time. Rome conquered the world. They had their Roman roads. You can go to Europe, you can go all over the world, and there's still remnants of these roads. It enabled them to get their armies to disperse throughout the whole known world to maintain the law. And I believe that Paul thought if he could get to Rome... He would have a strategic place from getting the gospel out because if all roads lead to Rome, that meant that people from around the world are coming there. If I strengthen a church, encourage a church, ground them in their theology, then the gospel is going to go out to the whole world. Paul was a guy who the Judaizers had made a bunch of accusations against. There were those who believed the truth of the gospel. There were those that were steeped in Judaism who'd strayed from the biblical truth. And so they were... Uh, speaking poorly of paul saying that he was basically a heretic and so paul writes this letter to these people in rome to introduce himself he says i've heard what you guys are doing i'm encouraged by your faith the word is spreading about how you guys are living out your faith i want to go there i want to encourage you i want to teach you i want to be encouraged by spending time with you he then also very He's going to talk about it later, but if you know what's coming later, you see it there. Paul ultimately wants to establish this relationship in Rome because where Paul wants to go is where the gospel hasn't been. And at his time of writing, the place where the gospel hadn't gone is Spain. And so he said, you know, I hope when I come there, I can spend some time with you. I can encourage you. But then I'm hoping, I'm praying that you guys will have saved some money so that you can send me to Spain so I can get the gospel to the outermost part of the world so that all people could come to know who Christ is. And in chapter 1, verse 18, he begins a long section that goes from chapter 1, verse 18, to essentially chapter 3, verse 20. And in this section, Paul lays out the bad news of humanity, that all people, it doesn't matter if you're a hedonist, that you have no God, you just sort of live according to what feels good to you. He addresses the moralist, those that aren't necessarily religious, but they believe in right and wrong and they think that they're better than those that don't have necessarily self-made governance. Then he addressed the Jews or the religionist is a word I made up, those who have created religion and a system of do's and don'ts and rules. And if you do this and you don't do that, then it makes God happy with you. And he lays out before all of them that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which we see in chapter 3 verse chapter 3 verse 23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god he leads this from verse 18 where he says for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven then against all ungodliness and through these chapters he builds this legal case that every single human in the world from from the fall till present day You're born with a sinful nature, and then you sin of your own accord. God is holy, and these two can't combine. And if we were to stop the book at at chapter 3, verse 20 or 23, you'd feel helpless. You would be faced with the situation of I'm totally condemned before God because he is holy. He is righteous. I am unholy. I'm a sinful person, and the two can't combined and so then paul in chapter 3 verses 21 through 26 the core of romans it really is the heart that everything ties into in romans he says apart from the law the righteousness of god has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of god through faith in jesus christ for all of those who believe there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, which means satisfaction, that as Jesus was dying on the cross, God's wrath was satisfied in that punishment. In his blood through faith, This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be another key phrase here. Paul says that God would be just and he would also be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God is just because he's not letting sin go unpunished. God is holy. He's a just God. He's a just judge. And when there's sin, it needs to be handled. And so then Christ going to the cross, is perfect, uh, perfect offering, that the wrath of God was unleashed for the sins of the world, placed upon him. And then through faith, God then justifies the one who says, I believe that Jesus did that. I have faith in Christ. And justified is a legal term. There were two options. The judge was, judge was hearing a trial. At the end, you could either be justified, meaning that you're you're free of all charges, or you could be condemned. And so justification isn't saying that you've never sinned or that you're free from sin or that you're not ever going to sin in the future. What it's saying is, is that by believing in Christ, by trusting in him, God declares that you're justified that the penalty that Christ paid, he covered the penalty due you for your sins. And Paul, as he writes this, he anticipates a bunch of questions from the Jewish mind. I think because he was one of the leaders of the Jewish faith, he he knew how he reasoned before he came to Christ, faith in Christ. And so he lists three points. First, he says, where is boasting? He said, there is no boasting. If you are a Christian And you've come to the cross. You've basically said that you're a sinner, that you stand condemned in your own works. There was nothing that you could do and that Christ paid the penalty on the cross for you. He did it for you. He was your substitute, theological term, substitutionary atonement, meaning that he did for you 100% totally and fully. We sing the hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He didn't just cover 70% and leaves 30% of you to cover the good works. The second thing he says is he recognizes there was a great divide in the church in Rome, just in general. There were the Jews who hated, despised the Gentiles. And the Gentiles reciprocated the favor. They couldn't stand the Jews. Now Christ came, he died, and there's both Jews and Gentiles coming to faith. Their tension, the discrimination amongst these two groups still existed even though they're now believers. And so Paul, to the Jewish mind, says, isn't God one? There's only one God, right? Deuteronomy 6.4, the great Shema of Israel. For the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Great theological truth. And he says, well, if God is one, it makes sense that isn't he the God of the Jews, but also the God of all people? There's no discrimination. We're one in Christ. And then he hears the argument, well, what about the law? God gave us this, the great law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, but really there's 613 commands of the Old Testament. Paul, are you just flushing these down the toilet? But I don't think they had toilets back then, but that's, a, that's what I hear today. Like, have you just done away with them that we no longer have to, all of these great truths and promises that God has given us, do we no longer have to obey them? And Paul says, absolutely not, in verse 31 of chapter 3. He says, on the contrary, we established the law. The law was never intended to save you. God never set a system up for you to do good works and that when you do more good, then you're accepted into heaven. The law was given simply to expose your sinfulness. And so in chapter 4, the first 15 verses, Paul illustrates these three points in the same way. He goes to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, all the way back in Genesis. And he says, well, what about Abraham, our great-grandfather? The one that we all look to was he saved by works through the law. And he tells the story when the Abrahamic covenant was given in Genesis chapter 2, ratified in Genesis 15. I think it comes again in Genesis chapter 22, where God makes this great promise to Abraham. Abraham says, what are you going to do for me? I have no children. I'm an old man. So anything you give me, I just got the, we didn't say bums, but I get this. I got these guys that live in my house that when I die, they're going to be the heirs. And God says, step out, Abraham. I want to show you something. So he steps out of his tent in the night in the Middle East. He looks up at the sky and God says, hey, count all the stars, if you can even count them all. He's like, as many stars as there are there that's going to be your descendants you will have a child and it's told said there that abraham believed what god said and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and so paul says listen it was never it was always about faith it was always through believing it was never a system of works he quotes from david the great king of israel and he's he quotes from psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 and he says see even what david says That it's not about works. Then he asks the question about circumcision, this great sign. And as he reviews circumcision in Genesis chapter 4, he says, listen, follow your Bibles. What does the scripture say? You'll see that circumcision, the, the sign of circumcision to separate Israel from other nations, a reminder of the promise, came some 13 or 15 years later after Abraham believed it. It was built upon the foundation of faith. And then when he gets to the law, in verses 13 to 15, he says that the laws never, never, ever, ever brought salvation. What the law does is in verse 15, it brings about wrath. As you try to live out the law, it shows that you're sinful and it exposes the sin that's there. We're entering into spring. When all the windows are shut and the blinds are pulled and it's dark outside, our air looks clean in this room, right? But imagine on a bright summer-spring day as the sun's about to set, if, a, if if there was like a big window right there. I'm going to take it up a notch. And we have the rays of light shooting into this building. The light, the, what would the air look like? You'd see all of the particles in the air. We think, how in the world do we even breathe in that nasty stuff? Well, did the light make it dirty in here or did it just expose what was already in the air? It just exposes it. And that's what the law does. So this is where we enter into today's text. And so in verse 16 of chapter 4, Romans is going to get brighter. He's going to get to the positive stuff about Abraham. Then next week, we get to start Romans chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. And some of the, the sweetest chapters in all of the Bible are coming our way, all built on this foundation. In our section today, from 13 to 25, there's some key words that I want to sort of highlight for you guys. Promise appears, I think, four or five times, dealing with this promise, the promise that God gave to Abraham. All through here, we see faith or belief that as God gave this promise, Abraham believed by faith. It wasn't by works. And so he says in verse 16, for this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. What's this for this reason? What's he talking about? Well, he just came out of verse 15 where he says, for the law brings about wrath. And so if the law brings about wrath, our hope isn't in the law. It's for this reason, looking forward, is by faith. It's by believing in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the whole salvation process is built upon faith through grace, that it can be uh, within the boundaries of grace. And when that, you know, this week I sort of get hung up on certain words. Now, I start asking myself, like, oh, man, did I did we cover this word grace has grace appeared in romans yet it's been dark it's been about we're all sinners we're, we're all helpless on our own has he talked about grace yet and i start having these moments of like feeling like i'm a, a a seal instructor leading the buds run where i'm like man i look good on the outside but man i'm like drowning to keep up with the class so I think, grace so i do a word study and have we seen grace in romans yet Now, of course, it came in the introduction, Paul's standard greeting. But back in 324, when he starts talking right after he said, for we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then in verse 24, it says being justified as a gift, being declared justified before God. It's a gift by his grace. It's not by works. So grace has appeared. So he's already mentioned grace, that we stand justified, not because of the law, but by grace. And so when he speaks for this reason, it's by faith that we may stay within the boundaries of grace. Making this point down in Romans chapter four, verse four, it says, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Remember we talked about last week where where Paul builds is, hey, if you go to your job, you put in your 40 hours a week. At the end of the week, your your place of employment issues you a check. And when you get that check, you didn't say, oh, hey, that's so gracious of me. <laughs> no, I slaved away. This is all you pay me. Like I want more. Like this, I deserve so much more. The problem is work. They call it work because it's it's it, you're doing something that other people don't want to do, and so you get paid for it. But in the Greek here in verse four, it's interesting. Because literally how this reads is now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as grace. That word that's translated in English is favor, is grace in the Greek. And so he starts saying that if you're working to earn your wages, it's not grace. It's what's due you. And then he ties it over into spiritual matters. If we are working to try to earn favor with God, we violate grace. And this is what he comes to in verse 16. For this reason is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Grace is the principle. This is is the means. We receive something that we didn't deserve, we didn't work for. God did it all for us. And we receive this grace through faith, not of works. So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now we have to remember back to last week, he made this big case. Now, Abraham believed by faith. Fifteen years later, circumcision came along. It was really funny in my mind, my warped sense of humor. But there's Abraham, 100 years old. God says, hey, we're still doing this. You need to be reminded. My promise is still secure. When you go home, round up all the boys. I don't care if they're slaves, any male in the house, you're going to go have a big circumcision party to remind yourselves. Can you imagine being in that house? Like, well, I'm a guy. And I was like, oh. Came later. Faith is the foundation. And then Paul reasons from that that Abraham's the father of the Jews. Yes, to those who are of the circumcision, he's the father of us. But it was reckoned to him as righteousness before circumcision so that he could be the father of all. If we go over to Paul's writing in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, we'd read this. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. He goes back to this promise that was given to Abraham, that he be a father of all nations. Last week, I sang Father Abraham to you. I won't, I'll spare you as I'm so tempted because it's such a fun song. We know that he had many sons. <laughs> and you are one of them. <laughs> and so am I. And how are we his sons? You follow my DNA. I don't, I, I, who knows, I may tie into him. But knowing my life, it probably would miss him. But the Bible tells me I'm a descendant of Abraham. How? Because when I trusted in Christ, I became his descendant through faith. The same thing to the Jewish person. They're descendant. They may be literally DNA-wise connected to Abraham, but ultimately it's by faith that they're connected. And so from here, the Father of us all, Paul says, remember, what does the word say? What is what do the scriptures say? The most important question we can ask. He's already asked the question, and he says, "I'm saying this because it's what the word says." Verse 17: "As it is written, as it is written in the Bible." This verse he's quoting from Genesis: "A father of many nations." I can imagine the Jewish person reading this as Paul writes and goes, "Is that really in the plural? It says the father of the nation. What's it say there?" Oh my goodness! Look at that! Right in Genesis, right when the promise was given. It's always been plural. How do we miss it? And Paul says he's a father of all nations. That was the promise of all nations. Have I made you in the presence of him? That's God whom he believed, who Abraham believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now, don't start giving Abraham too much credit. It wasn't that he was a man of, I mean, he was a man of great faith. So I'm going to be kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth. But it wasn't that he was such a great guy and had such faith that God had this blessing for him. It was the object of Abraham's faith that proved faithful. Because if we go back to that story, remember, Abraham was terrified because God said, Go get like a... See, now I want to start singing the 12 days of Christmas. Partridge in a pear tree. I... Bunch of animals. I know there was like a turtle dove because I think that's in that song. That's where that's where my mind went. Like maybe a goat. Let's just say a let's just say a dove, a goat, and maybe a cow. And I think there was one more. You guys can check me out. It's for yourself. Abraham knows that when he's given this list of animals, he knows that a covenant is about to be made. And what they would do is they'd slice the animals in half. They would put one side on one side of the hill and the other half on the other side of the hill. So you'd have the four or five animals all split in half with the blood dripping into the valley of the hill. And the two people would walk back and forth, looking at each other in the eye, shaking hands, however they did it. And it was saying, if I don't uphold my side of the bargain, may this be my blood in the valley. And if you don't uphold your side of the bargain, may it be your blood in the valley. Abraham knew he can't keep this promise with God. And so God puts him into a deep sleep. And while Abraham is asleep, we're told that God walks up and down this valley, instituting the Abrahamic covenant, totally and completely dependent on God's faithfulness. Nothing to do with Abraham. Now, to put this in simple terms, maybe I say that. Makes perfect sense to me, I should say. Flying. Flying i'm not going to ask anybody but i'm not afraid of flying at all there are some people that are like just like terrified of flying there are people i know that won't travel anywhere because they're so afraid of flying and every now and again you can talk one of these people to go in on a trip in a plane any little bump oh no this is it we're gonna. it's like relax planes are designed to bump up and down it's okay it's just turbulence Check it out. Look at the wing. They can flex like 20 feet. It's not going to snap off. <laughs> and, they're, and they're like just horrified. Now, I'm the kind of guy that it's like, I've been flying since I was a kid. I can, I mean, a plane can pretty much flip upside down. I'm like, oh, we're supposed to do that. The pilot's just hot dogging for us. What's that noise? That's just the landing gear going up. Or the flaps going down. Why does the door just fly off? I don't know, maybe there's going to be some skydiving. I didn't know when I was on this plane. that, like, It's okay. Now, whether you're f- afraid of flying or you're totally confident in flying, that doesn't affect your safety in an airplane. It has everything to do with the comp- competency. Did I say it right? Okay. Competency, got it right, of the pilot. So I could be the most casual, fl- oh, it's safe, I'm totally confident, all my faith is good. What I didn't know is they took a six-year-old, locked him in the cockpit with the keys and said, just go to town, kid. Now, does my faith and assurance and the safety of flying mean anything? Not at all. Now, they're the person who's totally afraid of every little bump, but you have the most experienced pilot that's been through all sorts of stuff. Even though that their faith is weak, they're totally safe. I'm sure there was a person, they probably never fly again, but the whole uh, captain something or other on that plane that landed in the Hudson River. They probably never flew again, but they were all safe because they had a very competent pilot. That even when the plane failed, he landed them safely and securely. And so Abraham, when Paul quotes on his faith, yes, Abraham had faith. He also had moments of doubt. We won't talk about Ishmael, but there were some they tried to help God out a little bit. But at the end of the story, when Paul writes about him, look what he says. His faith was good because of the object of his faith, namely God. And he says, as soon as I find it, verse 17, in the presence of God or him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which doesn't exist. So he says, look at God, there can be something dead and God can give life to it. We know that Paul is is leading to the resurrection of Christ in today's passage. That Jesus the Messiah can be crucified, killed. He was dead as a doornail. He came to life because God has the power to give life to death, to raise him from the dead. Amen. Amen. The other thing is, is that he calls into being that which doesn't exist. The thing that the evolutionists can't tell you, I say, okay, in this debate, I'm with you, buddy. I'll give you the billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of however many years you need to go back. But can you answer me this question as the Big Bang Theory happened? However many billions of years you need, because the time is the thing that is really their god. Because if you just added enough time, then certainly something could have happened then. In a discussion, I'll say, well, I'll give you all of that time. But let's go back all of those years. And at that point, where did this stuff come from? They won't answer the question. They can't answer the question. I don't know. It's just there. Well, how did it get there? I don't know. Well, How does the Bible record creation? God said, let there be light. And there was light. God said, let there be this. And there was God speaks. And nothing turns into something. Ex nihilo, Out of nothing. You guys might be able to create stuff, but you repurpose or you recreate matter that's already here. None of us had said, let there be a log. (laughs) Let my house be all fixed up. I've never done it. If you find the guy, let me know because I have a bunch of favors to ask. But we know the guy. (laughs) <laughs> but he's chosen not to answer me in that way. And he says he believed in God because God is able to give life to death, life to those who are dead, and create out of nothingness. To expand upon this. Now, it wasn't like Abraham had no obstacles in his faith. The object of his faith was solid, but in verse 18, we read, in hope against hope. Oh, that one just really stuck in my throat. Like, what does he say in hope against hope? He's saying that he had hope, even though his hope was based in everything that goes against laws of physics, science, everything, the natural world and the the, the boundaries that God has given us. God is a God of order. He's given us laws that have to be like natural laws. And when he looked at the creation that he was that he found himself in, it was hopeless. In hope against hope, he believed, so that he may become a father of many nations. There it is again, according to that which is spoken, shall so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Thus, hope against hope, God said, "You're going to have a son." we read in the story what we'll see here, he says when he, when he got God's promise, it said, well, he's about 100 years old. That's problem number one. He contemplated his own body. I, I, I harassed Mara as she showed up. Now I'll, now I'll harass her to her face. I mean, I already harassed her to her face, but last service I kind of had to harass her in ambiguity. Mara has a mom that's a, she's a spitfire of a woman. She's 99 years old now, still wears high heels. And if you ever wonder where Mara gets her like personality from, I think it's from her mom. And when I first met Mara, she came up to me in some casual conversation. Every now and again, you get sort of like awkward conversations with people that you just don't know them well enough and you don't know how to handle it. She's like, yeah, my mother is 99 or 97 at the time or 96, I do she was at the time. I guess she had a male friend. Not, not like mailman that delivers the mail, but like a, a male of the opposite gender. She said, Mom, are you going to get married? And she's like, oh, heavens, no. I don't like seeing my body in the mirror. It's horrible. Like and all this stuff, Mara can say it a whole lot funnier than I can. And I'm like, Mara, you got me in trouble because now I'm like talking about your mom and this. And it's like, how can I like? And so when I'm reading this, not in my notes, when Abraham saw himself, I'm thinking of Mara and her description of her mom with her boyfriend and how they're not ever going to get married because they don't want to. Go down that, but I've already gone too far. (laughs) God tells Abraham, at a hundred years old, you're still going to have children. Problem number one. Abraham looks at a mirror and he's like, my body's worn out. I'm old. I'm more like making arrangements in the grave. I'm not planning having kids. It's not going to happen. Problem number two. When he looked at his wife, I'm trying to find my spot here. Okay, hope against hope, which tells you, verse 19. He contemplated his own body, now now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Mathematically, they couldn't have a child. They would have a child. And they would call him Isaac. And do you know what Isaac means? Isaac? Help us out, brother. He who laughs... I don't know what happened with you, why your parents named you Isaac or whatever. He's a funny kid. But Abraham and Sarah, when she conceived, and she had a child, they said, we're going to name him Laughter. Because every time that we see this kid, this is the most hilarious thing that God has done. Look at us. Here's Abraham, 100 years old. Here's Sarah with her walker and a baby. Like she's... Beyond this, and yet they have this precious little baby boy. He goes on. In hope against hope, he believed that he might become a father of all nations. Verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Uh, moving on to verse 20. Yet with with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God and being Fully assured that what God had promised, he was about to perform. God gave him this promise. I think he was 86 years old is what Genesis records. Then you flip chapters. I just forget the chapter numbers. Then it says, then he was 100 years old when the promise of circumcision came. So 13 years had elapsed and then Isaac would come. God makes this promise with him and 15 years... You're going from 86. He started out with like, there's no way this is going to happen. Do you think 15 years of aging is going to help his faith? Well, the Bible tells us that his faith grew. And there's something about waiting upon the Lord that we grow stronger in faith, not weaker. It seems counterintuitive. And yet Abraham trusted the Lord because of his promise. There's a lesson here for us to learn. Yet in respect to the promise of God, what promise? When Abraham was taken out of his tent to look up in the skies, God gave him a promise. God is faithful, God is true, he cannot lie, it is against his nature. So when God speaks and gives you, gives you his words, it will happen. And in respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in the faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. God is able to do whatever he wants, so long as it's within his nature. So when God says, you will conceive, you will have a son, Abraham believed. Then the son came, and they are laughter. And we see, if you'll turn with me to to Hebrews chapter 11. I want to turn over here. So Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham is mentioned dealing with his faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is often the chapter referred to as heroes of the faith. In verse 1, we read, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. For by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared By the word of God, creation out of nothing, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. We go from verse 4, By faith Abel Abel offered to God. By faith Enoch was taken up. Verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Verse 7, By faith, Noah, verse 8. By faith, Abraham. First story, as this promise was unfolding, God said, you leave your country, leave your family, leave your land. You go to a place, and when you get there, I'll tell you you're there. Figure it out. He goes by faith. Then he was told that he would conceive a child, and he believed God. Sarah, same thing. Then in verse 17, we read, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendant shall be called. He's quoting from the Old Testament. So there's Abraham, an older man, growing in his faith. God gives him the promise. He says, Okay, I believe. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Finally, the son comes. Can you imagine? how pampered this child was, how loved he was. I mean, mama boys have always existed, but I mean, you you give a lady that hasn't been able to have a child for a hundred years and all of a sudden God gives her a little baby boy. He was the greatest kid ever. She loved him. She cared for him. All of The promises, not even their expectations, their expectations came from the promises of God that through him, you're going to become the father of all nations. And then God tells Abraham, you need to go make an offering to me. And you need to take your son's life as an offering. Abraham says, come on, son, we need to go to Mount Moriah where the dome of the rock sits today, where the temple was to that location. He raises his hand, about to take his son's life, and we all know the story. But in his mind, see, we've already read, because his he had faith because of who God is. God is able to what? Give life to the dead and create out of nothing. In Isaac, we see all of this. They were given life out of barrenness. And he says, I, if God wants me to do this, I'm going to do it. I don't understand, but if I kill my son... God is faithful, and he said, through this son, all of, my, all of my descendants will come. So God will have to raise him from the dead. And God stops Abraham, a ram comes in, and we continue the story from there. And so here we see that it was by faith. Then we see by faith Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab. One of the greatest names in the Bible, Gideon, my son's name for those of you Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith did a bunch of things, and others who are so overlooked. Verse 36, and others experienced mockings and scourgings, and yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. God, that brings tears to my eyes. Goosebumps. Wandering in the deserts and mountaintops and caves and holes in the ground, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Oh, I have that highlighted. God promised them something. They lived their lives by faith. Their lives were cut short before the promise was fulfilled. Was God unfaithful to them? Not at all. God was totally faithful. The promise came true. It just happened that they witnessed it from heaven. Which chapter 12, this is totally like a sidebar. I did not plan this, but I can't, I can't read the heroes of the faith without reading the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. So the author of Hebrews goes from all of these people who live by faith. And he says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He says that we're living our, our lives. There's these witnesses. Who are the witnesses? Those are believers who have gone on before us. That we're like living life in a stadium. And the people in attendance are those in heaven. And if you're with Christ, he says, run the race. Don't give up because they're cheering you on in heaven. Maybe it's your grandmother who passed away and who loves the Lord. She's cheering you on. Hold the course. Fight. It's worth it. It's beautiful. Now back to Romans. We'll do Hebrews another day. <laughs> okay. So we're in verse 21. And being fully assured, Abraham's fully assured what God had promised, he was also... That's weird when you pick up. Basically, God had promised it. God is able to fulfill what he promised. Then in verse 32, where it gets very practical to us, therefore it, what is the it? The it, I believe, ties back to the faith of Abraham, believing God in his promise. Therefore it was also credited to him, as righteousness because he had faith because he believed god god said i declare you righteous not that he was without sin not that he became sinless but because god said i declare you just you're righteous not only for his sake was it written that it was credited to him i'm sure it did a lot of benefit that that abraham that god said i declare you righteous for your belief but we're told that it wasn't just for his benefit it was for our benefit But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and raised because of our justification. So he says, as Abraham was pulled out into the desert sky to look up in the scars, and God gave him this promise, and he believed that was written for us so that when we read, when God has revealed to us, that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have an everlasting life. We look to Abraham and we say, you know what? God was faithful to Abraham. I can trust him in this. And so I believe. Keeping a journal of what God is doing in your life and when you're being stretched in your faith is so critical. I am not a diary person. I'm not a journaling person. I have a dear friend of mine. He was my best friend growing up. His brother led me to the Lord and passed away. He then, the younger brother, became a believer, and now he's entered into seminary. And it's like, I'm talking to him almost daily, either through texting or whatever. He's like, oh man, what am I doing? What am I like? This is like, they charge you for seminary? I was like, oh yeah, they charge you a lot for seminary. He's like, how am I going to do this? I'm working a full time job, and I'm doing this, and how am I going to juggle this? I'm like, it's a sacrifice, brother. It's like, well, I believe God's calling me to do it. And he had all of his fears. And then he sends me this note. He's like, I can't believe it. Like every single fear I had, God removed. And I said, brother, write it down because more are coming your way and you're going to want to look back to God's faithfulness to remind yourself when your faith is stumbling. And so we're told here, That Abraham's faith was recorded for us that we could be reminded of how faithful God is. So that we who believe in him, the father who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, he was delivered over because of our transgressions. As Jesus went to the cross, he was without sin. The Bible tells us that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Every stripe that he bore, every whip he took, as the nails went in him, as his life departed from him, it was for our sin. He paid the penalty for us. Then you ask yourself, well, how do we know it's true? A few weeks ago, I used an illustration. I think it was, I didn't really think it through on the spot. But this week or a couple weeks ago, since then, I should say, I found myself at Costco. I go to Costco all the time. And... I was leaving Costco, and what happens when you have your big old cart of stuff and you're pushing it through the crowds? You get to the door, and there's a checkpoint. Two people with their fluorescent markers or their highlighters. You can't get through with all that stuff until you verify that it's been paid for. How do you do that? You give them a receipt, and they look over your cart. They look over the receipt. I don't even know if they actually do I would not be reading it. That's probably because I would get fired. Oh, yeah, you look good. (laughs) You look good. They, they whip it through, say you look good. They flip it over. They give you a smiley face. That's if you have kids. So when I go without kids, I still say, hey, can you make me a smiley face? And they look at me like, are you crazy? I'm like, I want a smiley face. I don't really do that. I'm just joking. <laughs> so, so when Christ died on the cross, the Bible tells us that he made penalty. He paid for our sins. How do we know it's true? Right here, the Bible in the very last part, it says he was raised for our justification. Someone has said that that's God's receipt to us saying it's paid in full. Your payment has been accepted. We have the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. And next week, what we'll look at, which I feel like I need to ease into, is we go into chapter 5. Yeah, Romans takes off from here. Sorry, nobody's in the front row. It's splash zone. But Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, there, why is it therefore? Because of all of this stuff. The bad news. Then we get faith, the promise, God's who He is. That's what our faith—it's in Him. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. This should set us into like bursting and cheers and hallelujah, because if we go back to Romans chapter one verse eighteen, this is our problem. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You can go back if you turn there. Our problem is that we are with sin. God is holy. God's holiness requires his wrath to make payment for our sin. And then as we read through this, we come to learn about the cross. See, God's just not like an angry God. He's a God who loves us. The God who condemns us because of our sin is the one who justifies us. He is just and the justifier, as Paul writes. And when we receive Christ as Savior through faith, we now have peace with God. We can stand before the creator of the world. As we get down to verse 9 of chapter 5, it will say, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We Christians, uh, I'm one, obviously, well, not obviously, just because you're a pastor doesn 't mean you're a Christian. So, sorry, um, but I happen to be one. And, uh, but I wasn't always a Christian. And the Christianese, this this language that we use, you guys are weird. We're weird. We use phrases that I just don't. I didn't get at the time. And one of the one of the phrases that we use is, "Are you saved?" Man, when I first became a Christian, people would say that I'm like, "Yeah, I'm saved. I'm good." But then I'd still be living my life, and I'm like, "Man, I'm saved, but man, I am sure a terrible sinner. Like my thoughts are bad. The things I'm like thinking about, like, man, I thought I was saved from my sin." I wasn't saved from my sin. I was saved from the wrath that was due my sin. And then I was given a new nature and God's doing a work in me. And I don't struggle with the same sin I I struggled with then. But still today, the the more I come to know God, the more more aware I become of his holiness. And and then I figure out how unholy I really am. And I long for the day for that new body. And so if you're here, we're done. I mean, we're, we're done. We'll pick up next week. I'd like to keep going, you know, because it all ties together. Is If you don't know Christ as Savior, I'd encourage you to do your research, do your homework. There's case for Christ out there. If you would like to take a case for Christ or read at Lee Strobel's, place together a bunch of evidence uh, on the, the truth of Christ and the claims of the Bible. If you're a Christian, somebody asked me last week, can I take one to give to a friend? Of course you can take one to give to a friend. They're there for you, they're free books. The main thing is, if you take one, don't resell it. Just use it, you know. <laughs> and so, if you haven't trusted in Christ, I'd encourage you study, read your Bible, examine the truth. All it is is becoming a Christian is believing that Jesus died for you. And then God starts doing a radical work in your life. And for those of us who have believed, man, let us live with joy. Stop punishing yourself for your shortcomings god paid for your sin he forgave you it's paid for he didn't let you off the hook your sin was paid for totally in christ you've been set free and so father we thank you and praise you for this day we thank you lord for the great truths of romans father we pray that you would help our minds to grasp the theology found in this book, Lord, but we don't want to get wrapped around just knowledge. Lord, we desire to know you and to know you intimately. Father, we pray that as we study your word, that the truth would take root in our hearts. Father, that you would just grab a hold of our lives, Lord. Father, we pray that you would, your spirit would fill our lives in a way that the gospel transcends just all areas of our life our relationship with you, our relationship within our families, our marriages, our children, our workplace. Father, we need you. We are helpless apart from you. We thank you that it's by grace alone through faith. You are good to us and we praise you and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Amen.